welcome to Cinemaker's Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 6, Schizopolis from 1996. I'm Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And sometimes when we do podcasts about these movies... I don't know how to take notes on movies on certain sometimes. And this is one, like, I don't know. This is such an insanely weird and unlike anything else I've ever seen that, like, I stopped taking notes. I'm just like, I don't know what to do. Like, it just, like, how do you describe this movie? How do you take notes on this movie? Like, the biggest problem is that, like, how do you pay attention to this movie and do anything else at the same time? Because it's impossible to figure out what's going on and also, like, take notes at the same time. It is a truly unique film in that way, right? Like, it commands and demands your attention. And I think it's well-deserved, too. I mean, you eventually can figure out what's going on, but it is non-conventional from the start to the very end. Like, that is the idea here, is we are going to get as far removed from watching a normal movie as possible today. And I think he succeeded in, like, just about every way possible in making this, like, an entertaining, watchable, somewhat surrealistic social commentary. You know, as we talked about last time, this movie comes at a really fascinating moment in his filmography, where he had made, he'd come out of the gate with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was a you know huge international success and pillar of the uh, American independent cinema movement of, of the late 80s and then into the 90s. And then he makes these three movies that are, well, not all, I guess not only movies, but he does this terrible thing for uh, Showtime. But he makes these movies that are less successful overall. He, he at least feels that they're not uh, nearly as good as his first film. And he'd lost his juice, right? He lost his energy. He'd lost, he'd sort of been, been taken in by the, the tyranny uh, of the narrative. And so he uses this opportunity to break things down to their like bare, bare bones and see what he can get away with. And it really does feel like that. This feels like I'm going to do whatever the the F I want and see what I can get away with. And there's something so liberating about this movie as I watch it. And one of the things that fascinated me this time, since we're going through chronological order, is to see him like shatter the narrative at the beginning of the movie. Like there's no, you don't think that there is a story that you're going to follow. It feels like it's going to be a series of completely random scenes, these sort of things that don't seem to make sense, that aren't linked in any sort of story way. And then as it gets to the end, Mike, as you say, it does, it begins to sort of come back together in some way. Like there are answers to the questions that that, that it raises. It's just the way that it's made and so, so in that way, what it does to me, it sort of echoes what he's going through. He says, I'm going to shatter everything and then put the pieces back together and go on with my career if I can in a new sort of liberated way. And the movie itself, I think, does that. It really, really does. This movie is amazing in a lot of different ways. The fact that it only cost $250,000 to make. It took him like 10 months to make it, I guess, just whenever people could work for free. As we talked about last time, as Tobin just sort of mentioned, Soderbergh was just trying to start over again. He said he wanted to rediscover the joy of filmmaking. And he's described this movie, I mean, it makes sense because it's right there in the title, but he's described this movie as schizophrenic. He said that The Underneath is not his best film, but it might be his most important film. And this is like a direct quote from him because it realized, like, he, it made him realize what he didn't want to do. And in an interview after he finished this movie, he said he sees a future in which he'll end up applying a lot of things out of this to make something a little less schizophrenic and just sort of find a balance between whatever this is and a, quote, normal movie. You know, he's going to go on, as we sort of talked about, I think over the past few weeks, he's going to go make huge, huge movies like the Ocean's Eleven franchise movies, and he's going to make movies that, like, don't make their money back, and just sort of like this one-for-him-one-for-them kind of thing, but they're all, from this point on, creatively fulfilling to him in one way or another. Yeah, and I think you can feel sort of the satisfaction behind this movie to a degree. Like, it, it's crazy and irreverent and out there, but there's a certain logic to it. And I think he's, like, somehow subconsciously, like, guiding you through this film with his mastery of film language. Like, it, it seems to get less and less complex to you, but to me, what was happening seemed to be sort of more complex and outrageous by the end. But in a strange way, I, I felt more in tune with what was going on. And I just feel like his command of film language is what's mostly on display here is like these are sort of segmented in a way. And like Tobin said, they don't feel connected. Like at first I thought I was watching like a Kentucky Fried movie or Amazon Women on the Moon or something <laughs> like that, where it's just like someone flipping channels. And in a way it has that spirit because 
those were fun movies by fun filmmakers and and I just feel the fun here I feel this feels like a guy doing what he wants to do but it's also good too you know it's not it's not just like out there and weird for the sake of it I feel like he's actually trying to get stuff across and succeeding in certain ways like for instance the use of dialogue in films right like that is a big theme I feel in this one just the way he uses dialogue and language and how words don't necessarily matter it's the inflection this is my third time seeing it so it was a lot of fun to rewatch it this time and pick it apart and try to decode it a little more I was very impressed that it doesn't break by the end, right? Like that it actually makes it all the way without falling apart. So real quick, I mean, this was the first time I saw it, so I still don't know what to make of it. And I sort of defer the two of you who both seen this multiple times now. But we also need to point out the fact that we've gone, you know, a, a few minutes from recording this podcast. He's the star of this movie. He's actually the two stars of this movie, kind of. <laughs> and he'll act in, I think, I looked it up, like five other movies of his, but all in sort of like cameo roles or really small things. I mean, here he is... For sure, the one star and then one of the other stars. He plays two different characters in this movie. And it's, considering he never acted on screen before, considering he's not really, I don't think, comfortable acting, it's really, that's kind of amazing too. Yeah, there's a sense in which he's like, if this is going to fail, then I want to be the face of the failure. Like, I'm going to take it on the teeth, you know? Like, he will, in this movie and a lot of movies, ask actors to do potentially embarrassing things. I mean, the number of times he jerks off on screen in this movie is he's kind of amazing and knowing that knowing that this might be a complete failure like he's he's really risking this movie being a complete aesthetic and narrative failure and the as you say Mike, his ability to pull that off i think has to do with he threw himself completely into it and and that includes being on screen really feels like he wanted to put himself all out there right and say that i'm responsible like this is from my mind and i'm going to participate and like also kind of convinces me as to why it mostly works too is like his belief in it is sort of like made it work i also think yeah it was probably helpful for him to be there to be in it like as far as what he's asking these actors to do is like you know convey a certain emotion or expression while talking gibberish you know so it's like if he was in it too there's a certain amount of trust as well that you get from your cast saying okay the captain's going down with this ship you know, if it sinks. I totally really just admire that too, is just the, you know, the fear or whatever, just whatever it takes to put yourself out there that far and say, this is me, you know, like that's, that's just, you don't get a lot. I mean, you see certain people acting in their films like Gibson and Affleck and stuff, but I don't know. I just never feel like it's for these types of reasons. That's always more of like a a vanity thing. And this feels like the total opposite. Yeah. There's no vanity in his performance in this at all. And there's no attempt at it. You know, he's not trying to be the suave leading man in any way. He's trying to play a guy who maybe thinks he's the suave leading man at times, but but he's Steven Soderbergh, you know, knows that the, that the character isn't. There's something I want to circle back to that you had mentioned, uh, Mike, about language, that this film is a lot about language, and it, it comes up in ways that we'll get to where people are either speaking gibberish or foreign languages, or he's just, he does a lot of things literally with a language in the movie, you know, and it seems to be that the movie in some ways is, is kind of about how language you know, makes its meaning and how it can use meaning to deceive and how the meaning is underneath the words, the words themselves maybe don't actually convey or sort of insufficient to convey the meaning that you're trying to get across. But then also, you know, there's a thing we we talked about when I was in film school that every movie teaches you how to watch it in the first few shots, first few scenes, that, that every movie has a language of its own and that the movie teaches you how to watch it and how to, how to sort of speak its language. And the language in this movie, the visual cinematic language, is so radical to begin with that it takes a while to figure out, for us, the viewer, to sort of know how to watch it. And I think that, that it gets to exactly what you said, which is the movie doesn't get any less complex as it goes along. It doesn't, it doesn't become more simple. It's just that we begin to figure out how to read it, and, and he begins to reveal some of the relationships, how they tie back together in ways that, that kind of aid our ability to, to read it. But if the movie wasn't constructed this way, then you wouldn't have, you wouldn't probably have a, cl- a clue what was going on. I'm still not sure that I really know what's going on. I mean, I, I know most of it, but it's it's definitely a movie, I would say, more so than any of his other movies so far, that you really need to see a second time. Because it's so weird, intentionally so, that I'm able to pick up 
that language doesn't matter, that they can just say nonsense words and it's about how they're interacting and what's going on. But it's also like while your brain is processing that, you're also trying to follow the action on screen. And it's definitely the kind of film that even though it's laid out in three-act structure with the big – like they show on screen like one, two, (laughs) and three, right? Like they show that this is what's happening. It's still so weird that even though it's like a a sort of a straightforward narrative, there's just so much weirdness here that you're trying to process that while also following the story. And there's just a lot to take in. Yeah, definitely. That's the other thing too is like not only is there all like this – crazy artistic flair going on with the filmmaking but the story or the lack of or the plot like it's there but it's almost inconsequential which isn't average for a film if i had to say the basic plot of this is some guy who works for a scientology type corporation right has to write a speech for someone and discovers that his wife is cheating on him with someone who looks exactly like him but you know it really doesn't get there until the very end and there's a lot of just there's just all these like sort of sidetrack things going on that uh, of like lunacy and craziness of the way people act in this film world that I just feel like the plot is sort of secondary, right? We're just supposed to derive like an emotional response out of most of this and like you're just supposed to let it wash over you. And part of it is to be perplexed and shocked and sort of confused by the end going, what did I just watch? I feel like that's some of the intention here. But to make you want to say, what did I just watch? I want to see that again and to go back and watch it again and try and figure out like what was going on and see it from all all those angles too so i do feel like you're sort of wondering how to take notes on this and and what is happening and and all this like that's how i felt the first time watching this was like what did i just see but I did know that what I saw I really liked, and I think it's really good, and I had like a very positive reaction from it. Joey, since I've seen this now six or eight times, and Mike's seen it three or four times, can you say more about like at what point in the watching of the movie? Like, how much did you know about it before you sat down to watch it? As you got into it, was it like <laughs> how did it break your brain? At what point did it do that? Like, what, what was the experience of watching this for the first time? I wish I could watch it for the first time, so I have to live vicariously through you. So I knew nothing about it because my whole thing with any movie is I want to know as little about it as possible going in. So all I knew about it before I saw it was that one minute clip or whatever that we saw in that 20 minute interview from that Soderbergh gave a couple years ago when he was talking about the underneath and about how much he didn't like the underneath. And so just that like 30 second or 45 second scene of him talking to his wife and just saying, you know, like generic greeting, generic response, like that kind of thing. That's all I knew about it. So I didn't know if the whole movie was going to be like that. I didn't know what was going on. So I, I watched it and like, I, I don't, <laughs> oh man, I, I just, I just don't know. Like it's, I mean, every year on, I post on Facebook a list of a hundred movies I think you should see. It sort of started out as like a list of like great movies and my favorite movies and some weird movies, but it's sort of evolved over like the four or five years or whatever I've done it into just like a hundred thing, like a hundred movies that like haven't had their thing done anywhere else and like this is exactly on that like a movie like rubber for instance which is a movie about a killer tire like just like i love weird stuff that has never been done before probably won't be done again so i this is right in my wheelhouse it's just i don't know how to talk about it or describe it i feel like even though i saw the whole thing i feel like i didn't watch Mm -hmm, it you know what i mean like i just need to see it again it's somehow like it's like my favorite and least favorite movie that we've done of his so far. I think it's closer to my favorite, but it just man, it just it's just weird. It was like wonderfully weird. Yeah, wonderfully weird is a great way to put it. I have wonderfully radical, and I love this weird little effing movie in my notes a couple of times. Like I just there, there's a, that sense of liberation sort of helps for me as a filmmaker sort of tie it all together. You know, he's borrowing a lot from the avant-garde tradition here from experimental films. Even the the three times, like you say, the one, two, three that denote the act breaks that show up, like and three times a, a literal, there's a literal number, there's an actual number, like almost like the ones that go on your front of your house to, to tell what, you know, what your, your house number is. That gets dropped on a plate or on a table or somewhere in the movie to let you know that you're, this is part one, part two, part three. That's something that happens in some extremely experimental films that don't have narrative at all as a way to sort of give you a little hook and let you know that like, okay, we're almost at the end. <laughs> you can make it to the end. And, and he does that, things like that. Like it's, it's almost like a third of this movie is sort of based on some 
fairly radical avant-garde films. A third of it is based on like Monty Python structured movies. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, and then a third of it is like, is a more traditional Soderberghian thing working with doubles and in and out of people's lives and who's lying to whom and who's sleeping with whom, like all that kind of stuff that, that comes up time and again, the deception, the sort of human emotional deception, are we deceiving ourselves or we're deceiving each other? All that sort of emotional terrain that he at his best, unpacks really beautifully in, in a lot of his other films. You know, so I guess one of the things is, for me too, is that I came to the movie, the very first class in college that I ever had that was a, a film class was an avant-garde film class. So I saw the weirdest, weirdest stuff, like stuff that is, you know, a 45-minute zoom shot across a room. That's just, that's all it is. Like some very, oh very, you know, difficult to watch stuff, but it really sort of taught me how to watch stuff that's, you know, that, that doesn't have a story. So a lot of the stuff in this I was recognizing from other things that I had seen, and yet still it plays as as new and vital and and sort of vibrant. I think because at his heart, he is a narrative filmmaker. He tells stories, and he can't help himself. I don't think he could do a fully experimental film if he if he tried. I mean, maybe he could. He could do anything, I'm sure. But like, no matter what, as he's making this movie, a story is going to emerge from it. Because like what at its core, like you said, this is a very personal movie. I mean, he hired his real life ex-wife to play his wife in this movie. And she plays one or maybe two parts. And she's in this. And like the fact that they have, you know, like romance scenes together and they like kiss in this movie. And like they have this, you know, it's about their marriage falling apart. And like that's who like that's all of sex lives is sort of about him and like his failed relationships. And then you have the way that he plays with time. And it's not necessarily personal, but it's like a key component of who he is. And there's that great Koganata video essay that we talked about in the King of the Hill thing about how that boy was wearing two different shirts in that one scene. Here we see, you know, tying it back into his wife, we see scenes between him and his wife multiple times in this movie with different dialogue. Like in the first one, we see, for instance, like when she's going out and we know that something's up, we don't know necessarily what, and we find out that she's going to have an affair with his doppelganger. They're just talking in that generic platitudes way. And then the second time we see that scene, we see her speaking normally and she's being sort of awkward and evasive, and he's just speaking and it's dubbed over in different languages. Like, it's weird and experimental, but it also works, and it also feels like him, and it also is telling a story, and it's it's crazy how on the rails and off the rails simultaneously all of this is. <laughs> that is a, that's a great way to put it, yeah. 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 Watching this, I, I it's interesting. Like, I was kind of thinking at times of like Godard and Bunel and go and like that movement too for, for times. But then also him sort of saying, "Yeah, I could do that, but I could do this, and we can take that and sort of maybe Americanize it and stuff." And it's the same with like the Python. Like, it opens almost like a Monty Python film, right? With him on stage changing the the lenses, saying closer and closer, and like turn, turn. Yeah, and welcome to the movie. This is my movie. You know, like uh, I'm the man who made the movie, and like we're. About to watch the movie and and even the title screen appears on a guy's t-shirt who's being chased pantless by two guys from the <laughs> insane asylum you know so this movie is off the rails but it's sort of blazing its own path at the same time right like it, it's it's not out of control but it appears to be that way and and i think something for me that emerges from this is his use of point of view like character perspective and i think that's something we're getting when like for instance he follows himself to another house and realizes that he's another person and then like becomes that other person and then you see all the events of the movie again through that point of view or for the third act with his wife and that's when her husband seems to be speaking Japanese and so therefore we hear him speaking Japanese and it's just like that's how well they're communicating at the time I don't know about you guys but I just feel like in this movie that was really well done it's hard to compare because you guys are so much more familiar with his work than I am. I mean, I've seen his, I've seen much more of what's to come up until this point. The only movie that I'd seen already was Sex Lies. And I only saw that once like five or six years ago. I mean, from here on out, I think I've only seen Out of Sight and The Limey and Traffic and the Oceans movies. And then a couple of his more, it was like real newer ones. But like, I don't really know. I'm not as familiar. So I'm having, I'm not really comparing it to like what's coming. I'm just comparing it to what's already happened. And like, you know, comparing the point of view, you could see the same thing with King of the Hill, like where you see like these, this weird stuff going on, but you're seeing it through the eyes of a 12 year old boy. And so you don't know that it's necessarily a prostitute with the guy across the hall. You just know that there's a woman in like just a little bit of clothing and you don't really get the full sense of what's going on. Like, you know that something's going on either through his eyes or through your eyes, but you don't have a concrete definition or explanation of what that is. 
And so I I agree. Like you're right. Like that it's a very great example of point of view storytelling, especially it's sort of almost like Rashomani, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's you know you're seeing it from a couple different perspectives. It's just weirder than Rashomon. It's not like it's not just three people have different perspectives, but like this woman sees things like her husband is speaking Japanese, and like it's not just like they have different because rec- like the recollection is the same. It's just the perception of the recollection that's different. Right. Their sort of reaction to it, their memory of it, their experience of it is is different. You know, you, you, you get at something else that's, you know, a lot of filmmakers reach a certain point and then decide they either have to or, or want to make a movie just sort of purely to satisfy themselves. You know, they get tired of trying to satisfy the suits or the um, or the audience or whoever. They want to make one just, just truly, truly for themselves. And this feels like, in a lot of ways, obviously what he's doing here. I mean, and the danger with those movies is that they can seem masturbatory, which maybe is a, a clue to why he is jerking off so often in the movie. Like, he's sort of nodding to that fact. Like, this is just for me, guys. Like, you may not like it. I may not even like it. This, is, this one's just for me. And so it's kind of amazing that it's for my money. And anybody, anybody that, I've, that I've introduced the movie to, has responded even if they didn't like it they enjoyed it they enjoyed the experience of watching it and I feel like there are these times in there he has these like um, what feel like meta conversations about the experience of making movies he has this great bit where his character his first character who works for the the quasi-religious the Scientology type institution he gets called in to write a speech for the for the guru of this institution eventualism eventualism yeah. yes yes T. Azimuth Schwitters right instead of L. Ron yeah exactly exactly so he gets it's called in by his boss to write this speech, and the and the, the the boss is telling him, you know, in this wonderful nonsensical speech that this speech should basically say nothing, say everything and nothing, right? Should be articulate but not articulate at all. Like he gives him these completely contradictory things he's supposed to do, and you can hear Soderbergh getting studio or executive notes on on scripts and on movies in that, like uh, which I've gotten before too, like just completely contradictory notes on what to do with with the movie or political speech these days too, where speech. Loses, loses all meaning where we, you know the words themselves don't don't mean anything anymore it's the, these wonderful bits in there that are end up being both entertaining and that feel like him sort of exorcising some of his demons yeah i didn't really pick up on that connection before but i see it totally you mentioning it and i feel like that's definitely intentional because i picked up on some of that stuff in uh, kafka i felt like there were times where it just felt like the tyranny of the system coming down on him and and in this one it's just like him giving the finger to yeah him, yeah right he's like he's saying like this is you and i'm not going to conform i'm not going to do that but we they do end up finding some common him in the studio will find common ground which is i feel kind of rare and that's the other thing is like this is this isn't like some guy who made schizopolis and then like disappeared or anything like he's steven soderbergh you know it's like could you imagine if like spielberg made a movie like this or like tarantino it's just it still kind of floors me that he got away with it (laughs) that he went on to make out of sight just that he would go on to have such an illustrious career and take a lot of stuff from here like another thing i noticed that was him was his use of mixed the he like uses multiple formats in this so like it's shot in one format and then when a, a character is having like a dream sequence real quick or imagining what something would happen it might cut to what looked like super 8 or 16 millimeter or something like that and i feel like he'll do that again down the line is sort of calling out this means something different because it's shot in a different way like this is we're using diff- like especially with traffic and color and things like he's able to sort of discern realities with his use of different types of camera stock and i caught that a couple times in this where you know characters were daydreaming or um, going from one place to another and using like different frame rates. And I think that was really effective in this. It, it felt like he pinpointed moments to use camera tricks. It wasn't just sort of flying by the seat of his pants. There seemed to be some sort of insane plan here that he was executing. It didn't feel like improv or jazz to me. Even if it was at times, it didn't. I didn't get that it was that loose per se. Like it, it all felt tight with its playfulness. But weirdly, it was because apparently he was like, they were writing scenes the day that they were shooting and they were like combining that with improv. And I don't know if they really knew where they were going. Like all of his best stuff to this point, he wrote and directed this, even though he's uncredited in both. What's weird about this movie is the only credited person, I believe, is Miles Hardy as baseball player. Everybody else is uncredited. There's no opening credits, there's no closing credits, there's just one frame of copyright information at the end, and then just sort of a while of black screen at the very end of the movie. We have Cliff Martinez back 
doing the score. Soderbergh himself did a little bit of the score here. The only composing work he did, they're both uncredited. We have Eddie Jameson, who will return in the Oceans movies. And here he's playing my favorite name, Nameless Numberhead Man, you know, his co-worker buddy who quits his job and then we just never see again, I don't think. He'll be back. So he's doing all this stuff that, like, he's done to this point and he will do again. And it feels like he has a plan, but it's also more improv and loose and flying by the seat of your pants than we've seen so far. And I don't know that we'll have that again. I mean, I know that he's friendly with, like, the stand-up comedian community and especially, like, in The Informant. Like, everybody's in that movie. But I don't know if he's ever really this improv again because it feels like he's so meticulous in terms of writing and sort of editing as he shoots, that this seems counterintuitive. But the fact that it's just him and a couple other guys, and to hear him talk about it in interviews, like, there's just five of us in the room, and they're like, oh, we need a shot of a plane landing. So they'd all just pack up their stuff and just, like, go shoot a plane landing. And then they would go back and have that footage and keep working. So it's just like they're able to do anything quickly because there's no studio control. And the whole financing thing is crazy, too. Like, not to, you know, keep changing the subject, but, like, this movie only cost a quarter million dollars to make. I don't think it made its money back. Box Office Mojo said it made, like, ten grand in theaters. But, like, he basically called Universal was like, I'm gonna make a movie, I want you to give me $75,000 to distribution rights. And they're like, okay, fine, because it's no money to them. And, like, that propelled him for a while. And then eventually he would buy those rights back and sort of distribute it however he distributed it. But, like, they had no control over him, so he's just there with his friends and sort of coming up with scenes as they go along, and it's, again, wonderfully weird. Yeah, you know, he's going to use improv again a lot after this. Not in not in terms of improving the whole movie or making up scenes as they go, but but internally within scenes. We'll see that his actors get a lot looser after this. Like he's able to I think find more um, spontaneous moments after this movie. He, I think he's going to take some of the freedom that he had from this and sort of move that forward. He also will probably never make another movie without demanding a certain level of autonomy again. He, I think my understanding from reading the interviews and from just sort of watching the first few films and then this and then knowing so much of what comes next is that one of the things that he really valued, as you say from this, is like being just, oh, you know, a few guys in the room, oh, should we grab a shot of that plane? Let's go do it. And, and making that happen as opposed to being sort of shackled by anything. To your comment about him him writing this, one of the things in that interview, you probably remember uh, last time on the, the DVD for The Underneath, he talked about after Schizopolis, or actually after Underneath, uh, he decided he wasn't really a writer, right? Like, he's not a capital W writer. That's what's weird. It's like, he says in, like, this interview, he's like, I learned I don't like writing. I was like, I thought, like, the whole thing was that like, he loved writing. So, like, that was, no, that's weird. he loves but... storytelling. And he has a really clear idea of what the movie needs to be, should be, and what the, the demands of the story and the character and the, the film itself are. But what I think he discovered is that he through the making of this movie because he he was writing it but as you say he was coming up with it with other people in the room at the at the moment and it was happening he's using improv techniques with actors within scenes coming up i mean a lot of stuff that you'll that you see in the oceans movies where the repartee is so sort of sharp some of that is scripted and some of it came out of uh, improv sessions before and then was written before they shot and some of it came out on set like he he just became much more loose and then in terms of working with writers you know he's very intimately involved in the creation of the movies with his writing collaborator so he's there figuring out what the structure is going to be who the characters are going to be and and so i think in a way he is a writer you know he probably should maybe should be i shouldn't say this that could get me in, uh, in trouble you could you could <laughs> you could think of him as a co-writer on probably everything he makes because he's so intimately involved Involved, as I understand it, in the writing of those scripts. But I think I, as a writer, uh, am very glad to hear a director saying, you know, I appreciate the specific talents and skills and craft that a writer brings that we can come together and I can say to the writer, okay, this part is working. This part we need to have feel more like, you know, some ob obscure Belgian movie from the 50s or whatever. And then the writer goes off and finds a way to integrate that into the story. And I think he's smart to give that, that space to that collaborator. And I feel like maybe something like this kind of movie gives him a sense of what you, you know, to sort of have all the control, but also also spread it around to all his collaborators is a is a really powerful thing for him. And I also get the sense that he doesn't necessarily need to take credit for a lot of this stuff, which is 
why I feel like he uses pseudonyms a lot, you know? So like if he edits or writes, like he rarely uses his real name for that kind of stuff. So it's kind of interesting. Like you never, I don't know, is there a more giving director out there who will say like, it's not just me, it's all these other people. You know, he draws, it feels like he draws like little attention to himself in those arenas because uh, he wants the work to sort of speak for itself. Yeah, he's also going to do some of his more, you know, artsy, avant-garde, independent, truly independent movies going forward, things like Full Frontal. He's going to take big movie stars and throw them into improv, pretty direct improv situations that, that we're going to see. So he does, he does use this sort of in big and small ways going forward, it seems to me. Can we also talk about how funny this movie is? Yeah, we have Elmo, the exterminator. <laughs> Who apparently deserves his own movie, right? (laughs) This is not the right vehicle for Elmo. hasn't been properly used. (laughs) His name, Elmo Oxygen. This is apparently a guy who was a grip on, like, all of Soderbergh's movies up to this point. Probably someone from Louisiana who he just knew and had him as a grip on the movies. And that's, I mean, from from the get-go, you know, this is not going to be a normal movie. But, like, that's one of the early signs... Because he's doing that whole, like, nose army, like saying, you know, just not saying, like, generic platitudes, but saying just nonsense words, and they're having entire conversations. But it's not just him, it's whoever he's talking to. But that's all going on. And then we cut across the street to a couple in a car. They're like, we like him. Like, let's get him. And you're like, wait, what's that about? And then later in the movie, they recruit him. They're like, no, 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 like, this is stupid. Like, we, you just come with us. We'll have you in a better movie. And then he spends the rest of the movie beating people up and then asking, like, did we get it? Like, was that good? And that's, that's the plot. Like, Okay. And then at the end, he, he becomes the assassin, right? Like, his, his arc is that he becomes, he shoots the guy that Soderbergh was writing the speech for, and so the guy never, ever ends up delivering the speech that he sweated the whole movie trying to write. Eventualism is what it was all about. Also, that failed assassination attempt leads to one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and I think Soderbergh said it was his favorite scene in the movie, where that guy is in bed, and his assistant is reading all the names of people who sent him, you know, well wishes or whatever. And who's the really big one that he's never Oliver heard Stone. of? Oliver Stone. He's like, I don't know who that is. But he's either sending them a card or, like, a plate of meat or, like, a platter of meat or whatever. It's just... It's such a weird, frenetic scene that apparently there's like a whole story behind that too. Like the character playing his wife, the actress playing his wife just like left town. They're like, well, she was supposed to be in that scene. It's so like, let's just go find a girl in her 20s to be his assistant. And she's just reading <laughs> off names. And then that guy is like sweating on things and like, oh boy. Like it's just, it's, it's just, it's energy. Like yeah. it's just, it's great. Yeah. And to, to circle back just briefly to the exterminator, to, to um, uh, Mr. Oxygen, you know, the words aren't nonsense. He's using actual words. It's just that they're not the words we use to mean things. So instead of saying hello, he'll say nose army or whatever the word is for hello. They've taken the script for those scenes and they've and they've made a code. They've changed hello to nose army and, you know, you is changed to duck or whatever. Like they'll, they've, they've just done a replacement. So that as you watch those scenes, you hear some words repeated because of things like hello or goodbye or yes, the words that we hear most often, you begin to sort of pick up. So by the time those scenes are, which are sprinkled through the movie, by the time you're getting to the end of those, you're beginning to understand a little bit about this code that he's speaking. Not a lot, but just a little bit. Enough to know that they're speaking an actual language. It's just not what we're used to as English, even though the words are English. Right. And what that does is this wonderful dislocation from the audience where they know exactly what they're talking about. And we don't know what they're talking about, but are ha- but have to to pick it up through subtext. It's like watching a movie without subtitles, you know, a foreign language film without subtitles. And then what's interesting is that when he gets in conversation with the with these movie people who are poaching him from the movie we're watching, he switches into the English that we're used to talking with him. Like suddenly we understand him in a way. And that happens back and forth through the whole movie with different characters at different times who either, as we've t- said before, we hear a, a foreign language or they're being dubbed or they're silent or, and, and, they're, and they're sort of interacting in, you know, with language in, in different ways, but it is you know, and then, then the the uh, another another sort of angle on that is there's a, a eulogy for the guy who was supposed to have written the speech. The, the first time we see that eulogy, the minister or whatever is giving the most funny, um, blunt. You know, how many of you have dreamed about banging his wife? And uh, none of you really were friends with him. Like, he's he's saying all the subtextual things that no one actually says of the dead at the dead's graveside. And all that kind of stuff is, is to me, it was deeply, deeply funny. 
and that scene, I mean, not in not in the same way, but that scene also has like this deeper, weirder, funny, twisted meaning because the guy who's being buried is Lester Richards, and that's because Soderbergh at this time was like obsessed with mm. Richard Lester, who I love for <laughs> oh, making Superman, Superman three. three. Yes, he's one of my heroes. He also worked a lot with the Beatles. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Hard the Days and Night and stuff. Yeah, he's like this British director that Soderbergh apparently like wrote a book about or was writing a book about. I don't know if wrote it came out. Him. Yeah, it's, yeah. With him, okay. And so he put him in there because he he just loved him and it was sort of obsessed with him. So he just like flipped the names. He like sort of spoonerized the name in a way or just flip flopped the names. And it's just there's so many like there's like there's levels and layers of weird here. There's like what they're doing, what they're saying, how they're saying it then overall like what's happening and then like what the context of the scene is and then like what the meta context of the scene is and not every scene has like all five or six of those layers or whatever but like some of them do and that's why I feel like I just I still haven't seen this movie because it's so much to pick up on when you're watching it for the first time and just like I don't know what's happening that Richard Lester thing is like a total revelation because I, I could see a hard day's night at times watching this, you know, like that. I, Richard Lester is sort of in film anyway, kind of like a like a forerunner of like the music video format in a lot of ways, you know, like hard day's night and a lot of the stuff he did with the Beatles sort of precedes like the MTV stuff, like just flat out storytelling through music and the surrealist sort of touch to that and the kind of just rock and roll attitude. I totally pick up on all that here. And, and I think a lot of the comedy just derives from the way he juxtaposed things, you know, like the language stuff and, and from contradictions like the language. Like there's so much to do. Like language can be, especially English, just seems like infinitely complex. If you, you know, like you could just really play with it a lot. And um, like he has found many ways to do that. And yeah, I think that's where a lot of it comes from for me. And and also just the straight up like absurdity of everything, of of life, you know? I feel like he's just drawing attention to like everything is just so absurd. Like when he comes home and says to his neighbor, "Send your wife over. I want to have sex with her later." And his neighbor's like, "Yeah, she likes having sex with you more than me." But <laughs> but they seem like best friends talking about it, you know? And that is totally about like how people resent their neighbors or want to covet, you know, like a 10 commandments, <laughs> like covet thy neighbor's wife. You know, like he is making sense through it in in an absurd way and i feel like that's very funny (laughs) you could do that wrong but he has found a way to do it right and i think a lot of that's like a lot of his humor comes through that way in the oceans movies too just like how absurd a lot of this stuff is but he pulls it off if you guys are richard lester fans you have to find this book it's called getting away with it and it's in this it it was written in this year period as Soderbergh is making or finishing uh, Schizopolis and making Grey's Anatomy as he's and then gearing up for Out of Sight. So he's, re- he's returned to Hollywood. And so it's like half interview dialogue between just sort of transcription of, a di- of, of interviews between him and Richard Lester about both their sets of films and then inter- and then these sort of um, journaling like he did in the in the Sex Lies uh, book. Uh, Soderbergh journaling what the experience is like in those in those few months. I haven't read it for years, you know, uh, since way back when. But it's especially for for Richard Lester fans, it's really worth taking a look at. I don't know if I'm a Richard Lester fan as much as I am a Superman three fan. <laughs> How I Won the War and The Knack. His movie Petulia is a sort of touchstone for for this movie and for a lot of. Um, in, uh, American independent filmmakers of the 90s. What's it? Tarantino's talked about it before. Not quite this loose a structure, but but you can really see that movie's imprint on this and on some of other Soderbergh's work. Uh, I think he's worth look, looking at a little more deeply. I mean, what's even better about the book is that the cover of the book is him making faces yeah. in the mirror from the beginning <laughs> yes. of this movie. Yeah. So it's it's very you know tied into what's yeah. going on. You know, another connection as you talked about the guy who. Who they who was a grip who became the you know an actor in the movie, yeah the guy who plays Schwitters who plays the Elron Hubbard character he's a, in the art department he's a set dresser for a lot of early Soderbergh films and, and later Soderbergh films he and and he was the set dresser on Tremors and most sort of impactful to me he's the set dresser like the chief set dresser dealing with like putting the props out on the set for twin peaks both the original run and the upcoming showtime oh. uh, showtime sort of revival and firewalk with me yeah and, and so he, most of his career has been and continues to be that um and, but you could can you can imagine that guy walking around the twin peaks set okay i mean if you know that if they know that show i can imagine that guy walking on and giving you know cooper's cup, cup, uh, cup of coffee or whatever you know um so anyway it's fun to find that stuff Can I just mention for a minute how 
that the movie opens with a Dianetics joke. Like, it just openly is opening by slamming Scientology, and in a movie that's about absurdness, like, it goes with that from the start. Like, do you think there's anything deeper there, or that it was just something of the times, or or that he's saying, like, you know, Hollywood, don't get too wrapped up in Scientology? <laughs> because it is, it is clearly Scientology is well, at least from what I gathered, he's saying that's all bullshit. Uh, but this joke is, a, you know, it's undeniably a joke on um, Dianetics here. It's exactly like the commercial I saw when I was a kid growing up. Well, so whether whatever he intends may be one thing, but what he said was that this was not specifically about Scientology. He finds all religions equally silly. <laughs> But he he did sort of model it after Scientology in the sense that, like, no other religions have TV commercials or, you know, advertise themselves in the way that Scientology does. And so in yeah, that regard... consumer religion kind yeah. of... Right. But he isn't, he's not necessarily, like, he's not saying that Scientology is, you know, makes more or less sense than, like, Catholicism, for instance. But just the fact that they, like, advertise it, that's what he was sort of taking going after so whether whether or not he was like you know specifically harboring a grudge against it or you know calling them out or whatever he was saying like oh no no like that's not the case but like if you watch this and especially with that youtube clip that you sent over tobin before we started recording of the real life commercial right. like this sort of mock or ape for this like yeah it's 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 pretty close. and that ran all the time in my after school cartoons like i would see that dynex commercial all with that fiery volcano thing all the time and i i always thought like wow what a cool book that must be i remember thinking Thinking that as a, as a kid, <laughs> this commercial just run sort of would just run constantly. You know, another thing he's he feels like he might be taking aim at a little bit, and maybe not. This may be a reach, but he, the character that he transforms into his doppelganger that that he sort of. The is, dentist. It, is a dentist, right? Now, is this and how much better are all the dentist scenes in this movie than than anything touching a dentist in that in that uh, Showtime Fallen Angels uh, episode that he, that he did? <laughs> oh man, good call. And just on a separate thing, you know, as we're recording this, we just had Keanu as a dentist too, and this is better than that too. So, <laughs> is this are these the best dentists ever on film? Oh right, yeah, for Thumbsucker, Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, you might have to give it to Steve Martin in Little Shop of Horrors. That's fine. Real quick aside, my old dentist before he retired, maybe he's still around? I don't know. Looks so much like Kevin Spacey, it's scary. (laughs) So maybe he's the best film dentist that I've ever met. Sorry, I'm just picturing Kevin Spacey, like, working on my teeth right now. No, it's like, imagine Kevin Spacey a little less handsome and a little bit heavier as a dentist. Yeah, I mean, I, that is my favorite stuff. Maybe now because maybe it's like we're in the middle of the movie and, and I'm sort of figuring out the film a little bit more and these sequences take us back in time and, and we get to sort of readjust. And it, I don't want to say they're told a little easier, but I mean, the way that they're told are a little more conventional, right? As we sort of are playing catch up to ourselves. I feel like he's giving us time as he switches characters to sort of explain the plot a little bit here. We get like the bedroom scene where his wife is cheating on him with himself and <laughs> and he gets that, he almost turns to the camera and says, I'm cheating. I'm having an affair with my wife, you know? And I also really like the transition. Like it felt like a sci-fi movie where he's going to get there eventually with his Solaris remake um, but I feel like this is more of a sci-fi film than that in a lot of ways and just like the world that we're living in just how crazy it is almost like one of those times you're watching a movie and you're like oh is the earth like off its axis is everyone just insane is, is this like a precursor to like a Mad Max type of world or future or something like the idiots are in charge uh, and maybe that's part of the point right a lot of this has to deal with like office life and, and the modernity of that and how that kind of like steals your soul or you know you become just like this drone and stop thinking for yourself and all that and and his character in the office isn't thinking for himself he literally needs to think and write in the voice of the uh the eventualism guy his boss there's a lot of subtext that is actually saying something here but he's like that's there he's like it's almost incidental because it is just it, it spawned from what he's uh what he wanted to do like you say in the moment like it's like the, the film should go in this direction and let it say what it wants to say like let let the audience sort of derive meaning on its own you know like it doesn't have to mean what i want it to mean it's it's almost like a dream in that way like you can interpret this film on a personal level a lot of movies do that but i just feel like this one allows it to say like just read me any way you want to there's no there's no right way to watch this movie yeah, there's a, a thing that gets brought up with more surrealist filmmakers, people like David Lynch, where it says, 
you know, the, the best of those filmmakers, the films, you can tell they have a meaning. You can tell that they're, they're, that they mean something, but then the filmmaker refuses to tell you what they think that meaning is. Um, and, and that they have a logic. It's just that the logic may not be ours, right? It's not, not the same. It's not quite the same as our world. Um, and, and that's, this movie definitely feels that way as it goes along. I feel like there are rules to the, like to the body swapping and the, and the sort of language thing. Like it feels, it feels like a unified universe. I just don't know. And I don't think I could probably ever figure out what those rules are but it doesn't feel like it's just a bunch of a bunch of funny you know inside film joke crap just for its its own purposes it really does feel tethered to a real world that that exists outside of ours and so or like next to ours in some way i'm not really explaining that very well but i do think i do think there's a unified quality to the movie that way and i guess that's why i felt i was surprised to find out so much of it was like improv or like improv and then rewritten or collaborated and then written or however it was written because there do feel like rules even though new ones are always sort of sprung upon you you know like the movie's gonna do what it wants but it just felt to me like there was a grand scheme going on and so it was interesting there a lot of things that are improv don't feel mm-hmm. this sort of well-rounded right. to right. me you know like the, the idea that it actually comes to a conclusion right. that feels logical uh is something that that to me said like okay this was this was very well thought out but yeah it is fly by your yeah but you know it it goes to show that even when flying by the seat of his pants his sort of natural instincts as a storyteller as a as a cinematic storyteller are so to my money are so deep seated and and good that he's able to land the plane like this (laughs) this shouldn't this this plane shouldn't land Right, but he's he does he's somehow he's able to do it. It's, if if it's not if it wasn't all planned out before, if he's if it's about just him being open to the moment, well, then he's really good at figuring out which of those moments to keep and which which of them to let go. Absolutely, I think I'm out of things to say about this movie. I think I was out of things to say about this movie like from the start. I just want to watch it again, and especially there's a commentary track on the Criterion DVD where he interviews himself. Yes. So that should be probably pretty interesting. Well, the, 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 so um, the, what you should know about that commentary track is that he, the commentary track is about as absurd as the movie is. He I would uses, imagine. I would hope he uses so too. Two different microphones. So he he truly is. When you listen to it, it sounds like he's. You know, moving to, I mean, he is moving to different microphones to ask himself the questions and then answer them. And his answer, like he talks at the beginning, it's like, he says to himself, now what I've read in interviews is that this was originally a project that you'd uh, conceived with David Lean, uh, who, they, and I'm just interjecting to say, <laughs> who has long been dead uh, and, and had made, you know, made Bridge on the River Kwai and Dr. Zhivago and, and Lawrence of Arabia, right? And 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 then Soderbergh answers and says, um, uh, or he keeps asking the question, says, was that before he passed or after he passed? And Soderbergh says, well, it was, it was a few years ago after he died <laughs> and we had been um, – planning it and then uh, conceiving it and then he, I learned in the trades he was doing some TV thing so I figured I could make it on my own right so he's he's not going to give you anything about how the movie was actually made he's going to do sort of funny bullshit all the way through um, I haven't listened to the whole thing since it, the DVD first came out but the, my memory is that there's not a lot of, of insight it doesn't mean it's not fun but but he's sort of he's still playing the character if you know what I mean well, that's good because I mean, I would not want like a straightforward, boring, not that you'd ever have a boring commentary, but I don't want it just a straightforward, like, this is what happened on this scene, this is who this person is. Like, it has to be something that at least kind of matches the intensity and the wackiness of the film, and I'm glad it that it does. That. It does so. do that, yes. He's just such a weird, interesting guy, and, like, this is why I'm more excited to do this than, you know, like, Cage or Keanu or whatever else we've done. Or not more excited, but excited in a different, deeper way, because actors, for the most part, seem to be, like, they're not invested in the project from, you know, inception to, even, like, after the movie's edited, like, they have to, like, market it and do all, like, the junket and everything. It's like the actors, you know do their part, they learn the lines, they they play their part, they come back for interviews, but they're on to the next thing. They might be doing a couple things at once. I like hear it's just like he's so close to it and like especially I think he's, you know, we said a couple weeks ago and I'm glad that you chose him for this first one to kick off Cinemakers is because he's just such a weird, fascinating, interesting guy who makes great movies and I'm just I'm 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 really enjoying learning about him and hearing what he has to say. And like there's these books, like this interview book that I've been reading, you know, that there's an interview, at least through traffic, there's great interviews he's given for each film and learning about him and I like that he loves this. And I think that's the important thing because like after the underneath when he was waking up on set or whatever and be like, this is not the movie I want to make, it's also weird to think about how this is 
is the movie he was dreaming of <laughs> yeah. while he was making the underneath. <laughs> but I love that he loves movies and that loves making movies and is the kind of guy who will sit down for two hours in a booth by himself and interview him just to give, you know, a bonus feature on the DVD. Like, that's cool. Do you have anything else to say about the film, Mike? One thing I was reminded of when I took this off the shelf was this, I don't know if Tobin's going to remember this, but when Tobin and I first met, this was one of the very first, this was the first movie he recommended (laughs) for me to see. I think when we met, we started talking about Michael Mann and Steven Soderbergh and how like I should watch more of that stuff and or like we just we we kicked it off there and uh he's like yeah you need if you like Soderbergh you need to watch Schizopolis I mean if you love film in period you should check out this movie is kind of what he was saying and I did and yeah we've been friends ever since (laughs) you know I've there's never I've never been betrayed by a Tobin recommendation (laughs) since then but yeah I really I really like this movie a lot it's the kind of movie I watch if, like, I have like a like a film project coming up or something. I'll, this is like one of the movies I'll watch to remind me that, um, like, have fun, go nuts, like, break the rules from time to time. Like, film is a medium where anything is possible, you know. And this this is one of those movies that that kind of proves that rule. So. Um, I really recommend it, and yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, he he certainly doesn't have another film quite like this, but he will. But he will use a lot of like what he's learned doing this techniques and and tricks and things coming up in really uh, cool ways. So I feel like people should definitely check this out. Yeah, you know, I will frequently when I'm teaching uh, seniors in college, I will show at least a part of this movie at some point as they're sort of headed out to start making their movies because I think it is such a a reminder, as you say, you said it so well, that this is like, there are no rules. The rules are meant to be broken. And if you break them smartly and in the right ways, with the right intentions, and you and you practice enough, <laughs> you can really make something, you know, sort of exciting and, and alive. This movie is so alive. I feel such sort of intellectual and emotional levity to it and intricacy to it and complexity without being uh, heavy at all. I just, I watch it in the same way. Mike, I watch it when I when I need to be reminded of that, and I think that that's a it's 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 important to have those movies on our shelves too. Yeah, I'm glad I own this, as opposed to you know, for instance, other things <laughs> we've done for other podcasts, a lot of Keanu movies that I never want to own. That I never, I'm just bummed that I own. I'm glad that I have this because it's a weird, delightful little movie. Yeah, this is such a fun movie to talk about. So I'm I'm really glad we've we've had the chance, and it's a movie I think you could we could talk about. We could watch more and talk about more. You know, if we if we had this conversation again in a year, watching it again, we'd have sort of whole new things to talk about. If people out there are listening to this and have not seen it and have no clue what we're talking about because it's because it's so hard to describe, you really really should take a couple hours and watch this movie. I, I sort of wish that, like, you know, the worst idea of all time podcast where they watch Grown Ups 2 every week for a year <laughs> or Sex and the City 2 every week for a year or We Are Your Friends every week for a year, that they did a movie like this because they would have more to work with. I mean, I've, I, they, they're doing their own thing. We don't know them. So let them continue what they're doing. But, you know... I, there's something here that you could watch this over and over again and just analyze different things or talk about different characters. There's so much here that it's just, it's wonderful. So for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and see all the episodes that we've done so far, see what's coming up next. You can see the other shows on our network. Lots of fun, free things for you to do with those three places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Thank you.